Good evening. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 18 tonight. And after our time tonight, I'm going to jet out of here because it's my daughter's birthday. And we've got family over at the house, and I'm going to go eat cake um, and hang out with the family. 23 years old today, my baby. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. Well, last week we had an interesting time and we talked about a lot of interesting things from transfiguration to demon possession to taxes. And this week's going to be no different. Um, There are a lot of passages here in this chapter that are stretching, that cause us to wonder, what is he talking about? What is he trying to relate to us? And some of them that are easy to grasp hold of and are very comforting, very challenging, and I hope they are just that uh, tonight. Uh, The first thing we're going to read is about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so let's start in verse 1 of chapter 18. Said, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's stop right there. Mark's gospel, chapter 9, tells us that this event takes place after the disciples are arguing or disputing with one another about who is going to be the greatest. Mark also tells us that this happens immediately after Jesus predicts his death which happened just a little bit previous uh, in chapter 17. And, and we see that they didn't fully understand that Jesus was going to be dying. They, they were grappling with that, trying to wrap their minds around the, those things. But what an interesting time for that argument to come up. Jesus has just talked about him going to die in Jerusalem, and they start arguing, well, who do you think is the greatest? And you wonder what would prompt them to ask that question. What do you think was going through their minds? This is, remember, involvement. I need, I need input here. What do you think was going through their minds? Why would they ask who is going to be the greatest? I mean, the whole idea of the kingdom, remember we've talked about this on Sunday, what the kingdom meant to them. This was an established kingdom. That's what they were looking forward to. So they were looking for a position of prominence. Was it who was going to replace him or or did they fully understand he was going to die or, or, or maybe they just wanted some kind of position in this new kingdom, right? They're wanting to establish themselves in this new kingdom. And of course, Jesus knows these things. He understands that and As he asks them, you know, as they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Their idea of the kingdom of heaven was probably a little bit different than what we've been looking at the kingdom of heaven to be. 
They had in their mind one thing, establishing who was the greatest among themselves, because that's really what's going on behind the scenes here, Mark's gospel tells us. And Jesus answers them, and he says, unless you change. First he says, truly. It's like, I'm telling you, serious, folks. And I just underline this because it struck me, unless you change. Other translations use the word converted or turned. They all have a similar meaning, but it is something needs to change within you. I'm telling you the truth, that unless something changes in you, then you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that the kingdom of heaven is different than what they were thinking about. And as we've been going through the series, this beautiful mess, we see that the kingdom is something that's taking place and is going to be fulfilled still in the future. But there has to be a change for them to enter into this kingdom. And he tells them the change has to be that unless they come as this lowly child, become like a little child, they say, a a lowly position, he says in verse 4, therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now when you see or hear this thought, a lowly child, what are some lowly characteristics of being like a child? What are some things that come to mind? Innocence, great. What else? When you think of what is Jesus referring to, this lowly characteristics of being like a child, innocence is one. What? Humility. Great. That's kind of comes in with that lowly, you know, is the idea of humble, uh, being, in fact, some translations that say, humble yourself as a little child. So humility. What else? Trusting, too. Jinx, you guys owe each other a Coke. (laughs) Trusting, what else? Any other things stand out? What about teachable? I mean, there's so many things. What about forgiving? What about filled with wonder? There's so many things about children that are inspiring. That when we look at children and when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are in this kind of state, I think of how adaptable children are. I think of how willing they are to learn. I think of how a child at five years of age can learn more languages than a person at 30 or 40 or 50 years of age. There's this flexibility that's still taking place in their brain. I think of how easy children are to forgive and want to love, how teachable, how innocent, all these things that we've mentioned. Jesus is saying, this is the condition. This is the doorway into this kingdom. It's like the child. And remember, what's taking place here is they are fighting to see who's greatest in this kingdom. That's not something that usually takes place within a child wanting to be the greatest. Oh, sure, it might happen on a sports team, but just in general, kids aren't trying to find position. They're just trying to enjoy life. 
Have you ever been walking through Home Depot and you see a little girl wearing a princess dress, skipping and singing? And you're thinking, she has no concern with the fact that she's singing, skipping, or wearing a princess dress in Home Depot. She's not worried about what other people think. In fact, she probably thinks she's pretty amazing. And they're just singing out, and they're singing whatever songs are in their head, and there's this, this experiencing life that's taking place within a child. She's not concerned with what other people think or where her position is. And Jesus is saying this humility, this innocence, this trusting child is your example. So instead of trying to assert yourself, you need to, in a sense, be dependent. You need to be vulnerable. You need to be molding, moldable malleable what's the word anyway you know what i'm saying you need to be able to be molded malleable there it is you need to be able to be clay in the father's hands if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and so he goes a little bit further and he says not only do you need to be like that, you need to welcome those who are like that, which means you're not to be a tyrant over people. You see, children are very susceptible to that kind of being dominated in that sense. But instead of taking advantage, you're supposed to welcome them. And it's now coming to the place where those who are innocent, those who are dependent, those who are trusting, those who are innocent, you need to treat them like you would me instead of trying to lord over them. And and he starts shifting a little bit because he's talking about actual children, but then he's going to go on and he's going to start to talk about those who are like this. And those who are going to be like this in the kingdom of God. And he goes on in verse 5. He says, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The idea of a child in my name. Rabbis called their disciples their children. It was part of these are my sons in faith, so to speak. And so children is going to spread to not just the little ones, but to those who are disciples. Verse 6, he says, anyone, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, and we see that expansion now, not just kids, but those who believe in me, those who are innocent, those who are trusting in me, if they cause one of these to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Wow. 
some strong words here. The idea of stumble is offenses. One translation even says temptations. It has the idea of spiritual destruction. And so causing one of these little ones, those who believes in in Jesus, to, to be offended, to bring them to the spiritual destruction, has serious consequences to them. And he goes on to explain the seriousness of these consequences. He talks about this millstone hung around their neck and then dropped into the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but drowning is like the most awful thing I can imagine. It was like one of those things that I used to be afraid. I'm still afraid of it. But, you know, I don't think about it as much as I did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it's like, oh, no, drowning would be the worst. You know, you're just, anyway, it's just, it's bad news. And the idea, too, is not just drowning. The millstone is such, it's heavy that no one can retrieve you. When this is put around your neck and you're dropped into the sea, there is no one who is going to be able to rescue you. That's where you stay. They can't retrieve your body. They can't go and bury you. And that was a big deal. You're there and no one can get you. And so he's trying to paint a picture, and he is doing it very clearly, of this state of destruction. And what brings us to this place of destruction is causing someone who is a a believer, someone who is innocent, to tempt them, to, to lead them into a place of sin. And... He's bringing this in such a vivid illustration, such harsh words. And he goes on and he talks about this eternal fire, this eternal punishment. And if your foot or your hand causes this kind of offense, then cut it off, or if your eye, and when he's talking about your hand, foot, or eye, it constitutes the whole of a person. The feet and the hands have to do with actions, the things you do, where you go. The eye has to do with perceptions, the things that you see and enter your mind. And so the things that you do, the things that you involve yourself in, if they are causing you to stumble, then you need to realize what is more important. Now, we know that Jesus is not speaking literally. They didn't think he was. There's no reason we should think he is. He's not trying to tell you, well, you need to cut off your hand because you could sin as easily with your left hand or your right hand or your left eye or your right eye. The point is comparison. How important is the spiritual life. Well, it's more important than this physical life. It's supposed to be very, very serious. Whatever hell will be like, it is worth any price to avoid going there. And Jesus is making that point. And he's making that point so that they will understand, again, the seriousness of this kingdom. Remember, it starts, we need to keep in in mind where 
this conversation started, who's going to be greatest? If you're going to fight for greatness at the cost of these people who are innocent, if you're going to trample upon others to gain status, which is what was being done with the religious leaders who are there, then you're in dangerous ground. If you're only concerned about your advancement, your satisfaction, you, what's going to please you, you're in dangerous ground. And if you're going to do that at the cost of using others and stumbling them and causing them to fall, then it would be better if there was a stone tied around your neck and you were drowned in the sea. It would be better for you. That doesn't sound very good, and it would be better for you than if you cause one of these to stumble. And so Jesus is bringing out some various serious issues here. And he talks about thrown into the fire of hell. He talks about eternal fire in verse 7. And so Jesus is, is bringing to mind here this idea of lasting judgment. He's bringing to forefront here the idea of eternal judgment. And that's a difficult thing to, to deal with. It's a hard thing. I mean, it, it's one of those things when people say, well, how can a loving God, you know, send someone to hell? And it's one of those things we have to wrestle with. And yeah, I can, you know, go through the arguments, but it's, it's a serious thing. And it's a haunting thing. And it's meant to be. It's meant to bring about this serious idea of what hell is like. You know, the Jews believed that the most unforgivable sins were teaching other people to sin. That it was one thing if you sinned yourself to get forgiveness, but it was another thing to teach others how to sin. And this plays in with the vein that Jesus is going through. Are, are you going to lead others to a place that is going to cause them to be stumbled, to be tempted against their belief in Jesus? If you are, it's dangerous ground. And remember the context of who he's talking to, the people that were around them, because Christianity was about to go through some incredible persecution. It always has. But at the beginning, it was going to be very extreme. Those who would believe in Jesus were going to be persecuted. They were going to be taken, going to be fed to lions, going to be crucified like Jesus, persecuted in just awful ways. And Jesus is saying, if that happens and you... you cause these people to try and deny me, woe to you. And, and he says, offenses have to happen, but woe to those to whom they happen. Now, does this cause any thoughts in your mind? Do you guys have any thoughts about this whole passage? What does it make, bring to mind? Or, or any thoughts come to mind? Or any questions about this? Well, Mark tells us when they were asking who's the greatest, they were wondering about themselves. 
And so they were thinking, which one of us is going to be great? That's what Mark's, it, Matthew doesn't go into the detail that Mark's gospel does in Mark chapter 9, but it says in Mark's gospel they were arguing, disputing with one another who's going to be the greatest. And then Jesus asked them and they brought the child before them. But this whole idea of just uh, stumbling and millstones and eternal fire and cutting off your hands and feet, plucking out your eyes. Does anyone, where does that make you think? I mean, what, what are the thoughts that come to mind when you hear Jesus talking about these things? Let's, let's look at that. If, what does he mean when he says, if your hand, where is it? If your hand, verse 8, or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed. Than, or cripple. It's interesting his terminology. It's better for you to enter life maimed. Again, there's this idea of a life that we don't yet have that needs to be taken hold of. In other words, the, the kingdom is this life that God is offering to us. And it's better to enter into that maimed without your hand, without your foot, without your eye than to not enter it at all. In other words, at whatever cost you need to enter into this life, you need to do it. It's more important than anything. It's more important than your physical body. We're talking now eternal things, and the physical body is temporary things. There seems to be that contrast between the physical that is temporary and this life that is eternal. And that's when he says that eternal fire, we're talking now more than just the temporary. And so don't allow the temporary things to keep you from getting into the eternal things. And so there is that kind of comparison that's going on. And the challenging for us to think of these things in that way. And so it, it is very sobering. Verse 10, we'll move forward. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, little ones, again, he's talking about children, but he could also be talking about these who believe in me, my disciples, my children, those who are my followers. I believe he's talking about both. Some believe it's one or the other. I think it actually has to do with both. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Okay, there's a verse for you. <laughs> what the heck is he talking about? What are your thoughts on this? What does that verse make you think? Guardian angels, right? I mean, Jesus seems to be endorsing, and it was a Jewish belief in these guardian angels. They, they believed that there were angels for all kinds of things. And Jesus seems to be endorsing that. That these little ones, that they're angels, are always seeing the face of God. Now, what does that mean? What are some thoughts that come to your mind? I mean, I don't know about you, but it's a, after just hearing this verse about, oh my gosh, millstones and cutting off your hands and not going into eternal fire, and then he, he comes to this place, see that you don't despise these little ones because I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What does that make you think of? What, what, where does your mind go? If these little ones have these guardian angels 
And why does he say that their faces are always, their face, always see the face of my father in heaven? What do you, what do you think that means? Isn't it interesting that there's so little explained? He just throws this out there. Just says, hey, yeah, the angels are always looking at the face of my father. You know, one of the things that I see here is that there is help always pulling for these little ones in the right direction. In other words, that that they are looking to God on their behalf. There is this connection that they are being covered and watched by God himself. That these little ones may not see God, but their angels do for them. Kind of a, a thing. Um, it's just interesting how these things play out. How he talks about this thing so matter-of-factly. You know, just kind of puts it out there. Be careful. Because there are angels watching out for them. And they're always in God's view. That's amazing. And, and you wonder, you know, those kinds of stories that happen, and it's just like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And God has had his hand upon them and, and watching over them. You know, and that story happens with children, and I've heard that story with other people as well. I remember there was um, a young lady when I was um, back in Alhambra. I was young kid as well. And she talked about how she was parked and these people came that just didn't seem like they wanted good. You know, they were going to do her harm and she was afraid and she was blocked in. And as they started approaching her car, she had a little Volkswagen bug. They were popular at the day. And she was trapped where they, she couldn't get out because there was a, their car pulled up behind hers and there was like a three-foot wall in front of her and she was petrified and she said, oh God, I don't know what to do. And she said her car just jumped over this three-foot wall and then she was able to drive off and there was no damage to her car. Now, I'm you know, pretty familiar with, I had a Volkswagen bug. They don't jump three-foot walls. They just aren't good for that. And, and and so you hear stories and she's like, I don't know what happened. All I know is I made it over the wall. Their car pulled up behind me so I couldn't get out, but I got out. And it was one of those things where you just feel like, yeah, some angel was there, you know, watching out for you, keeping you safe. I remember going down the 57 freeway in my bug. Maybe it's a Volkswagen thing. And it was raining. And I would have to get up as much speed as I could to make it over the hill because it was an old Volkswagen. It was a 63. And as I hit the bottom of the hill, going as fast as I could, it started hydroplaning. And I started spinning. And I remember spinning all the way across to the center divider and all the way. I don't know how many times I spun. It seemed like 10, but I know it was probably just once. But I just spun all the way to the center and then all the way to the end. And I was facing the right direction afterwards. And I missed all the cars that were driving. I was like, it was like a movie. I was like watching, huh, there's someone. Huh, there's someone else. Hey, there's someone else. There's the center divider. Hey, here I am at the side. And I was facing the same direction. I was like, wow, 
that was different. You know, and I just had this picture of some guardian angel smashed against the center divider. Like, okay, I got him. He's okay now, you know, pushing me from the center divider. But what an amazing thing to think about angels, actually, messengers from God watching over his people. And always having eye on God and always watching out for them. It's just an amazing thing that we see here, and it brings comfort to a large extent. But then just previously, Jesus said that there's going to be those who cause stumbling and cause hardship. It has to happen. But woe to those who happen. Because there are the stories of the girls who, whose cars don't make it over the wall. You know, there are those instances, and it doesn't mean that God isn't caring. Those things are going to happen, and woe to those that it happens. But understand that God's face is still upon them, that the angel is looking at the face of God for these people. And again, it's the understanding that God is seeing what is happening and someone is there telling it to God. God, look what is happening to your little one right now. Okay, and so even when hardship happens, because it does, there aren't always deliverances. People don't always get rescued. And when it doesn't happen or when it does happen, there is someone there telling God, hey, God, this is what's happening on behalf, almost interceding for that person. Uh, and it's just interesting, interesting passage. And then it just stops. It just says that, you know, okay, everyone understands that passage, right? No, I don't. I just got a little glimpse. And it's like, well, that's enough, you know, for you to know. In verse 12, he says, what do you think? Okay, so asking us a question here. What do you think if a man owns a 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So what do you think? What do you think? That if someone is out there lost. God is going out and looking for them. He is caring for them. It's concern that leads the shepherd to search for what was lost. Now, put this together with the, the whole passage that we just read, you know, about the angel and God searching and God caring. He, what do you think he's trying to tell us And these passages connected together because I believe Matthew is putting these things together on purpose Matthew is not always good at being as chronological as say Mark was but he's very good as connecting these things to try and relay the truth and I believe he's doing that here too and so when he's saying what do you think about this shepherd who goes and, and searches what's he trying to tell us pretty simple right that God cares yeah, the one who's lost, that's way out there. God is searching for them and rejoices when he finds them. There is this concern. The angels are always looking at the face of God. The shepherd is looking for the one that is lost. God is always concerned 
and is willing, not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Any of these people who are searching, these little kids who are helpless, these people who are helpless. I remember one time I was in the doctor's office with one of my boys, I think it was Jordan. He was sick, and I, I for some reason, was the one who had to take them because Corinne was probably home with the other three. And so I got the easy one. Um, I went with him to the doctor's office, and, you know, he'd been crying, and we knew he had a sore throat or something, and so the doctor had taken a culture and looked at his throat and said, you know, well, he has strep throat. And I was sitting there, and Jordan's sitting on my lap. He's probably three years older, maybe not even, something like that. And, he, and he's sitting on my lap, and the doctor says, he has strep throat, and it's very contagious. In fact, he shouldn't even be sitting on your lap. And I remember thinking, what do you want me to do? I can remember Jordan looking at me like, what are you going to do with me, you know? <laughs> Am I going to just put him off to the side? You're banished, kid. Off with you. You know, you have strep throat. We're going to put you in the closet. You know, what, what are you supposed to do with that? And I remember thinking, there's no way I'm going to move my child off of my lap. I can't do that. And I remember being puzzled at the doctor even saying that to me. You know, it's, and Jordan looking up at me and at him like, what What does this mean? You know, I mean, who knows what was going on in his mind. But there is this concern that you have for your children. You, you, you don't, your concern about them is more important than your own health. It's like, oh, well, I guess I'm in danger of getting strep throat, but I'm not going to banish my child. I don't know what you're asking me to do. And I still don't know what he was asking me to do. And Jesus is relaying this concern for the father. I'm going to go look, even though it's dangerous to go out in the night and in the hills that are there, the sheep would wander because there were no fences. And so it wasn't uncommon for the shepherd to have to leave the sheep with one of the other shepherds and go and off and look, even though there's cliffs and even though there's rocks and even though there's other animals that are wild, he's got to go and look for the sheep. And when he finds it, He's so glad. He's so concerned about them. When he finds them, he's ecstatic. And these two passages where Jesus is talking about the angels looking at the face of God and the shepherd going and finding the sheep, it's just showing how much God cares. It's giving us insight into God's heart and in an amazing way to, to understand what does God think? How does God feel about those who are, are hurting, those who are lost, those who are hungry, those who are helpless, those who are struggling? What does God think? Well, this is telling us that they have angels that are looking to God for them, that are talking and saying, God, here is this person. Here's this little one. Here's this helpless one that there is a shepherd that is longing to go after them. And we know that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so it's giving us insight into God's heart and helping us to see what God thinks about people in general, especially those who are like these children, these little ones, these ones who are helpless, these ones who are innocent, these ones who are dependent this is what God thinks about them. And it's comforting. It's kind of overwhelming. And just, it's 
beauty. Verse 15 goes on, if your brother or your sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others among you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay. A couple of things are interesting about this passage, and we're going to tie it quickly to another. Um, Anything stand out to you about this passage that Jesus is saying? Well, let me ask you this. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? I mean, what I have heard, interesting, the commentaries on this passage, some have said this means to excommunicate them, which was interesting way of interpreting, but did Jesus excommunicate pagans or tax collectors? No. So, yeah. And so how did he treat, well, Paul wasn't a tax collector, but I mean, he was, you know, outside of faith, I guess you could say. Um, pagans, you know, those who didn't believe in God, those who were without God, who were outside the knowledge of who God was, um, and tax collectors, those who were kind of ostracized because they were considered thieves, basically. Um, but it's interesting how Jesus treated them. It's also interesting that he uses the word um, church here to take them to the church because the church was not yet established, which causes some people to think, and it should. Okay, what, what, what are you talking about, church? And so remember, Peter, I mean, excuse me, Matthew is looking back at what Jesus is saying, had said, and he's putting those words together, and he's saying, okay, this is what he was trying to, to disclose. And we're going to look at this a little bit more in light of, I had one commentary that said that this was just added later on. And it wasn't actually Jesus's words, but there is no evidence to support that. And so I'm, I'm going to throw that commentary away, not, or just this passage and say, you know what? It's in all the manuscripts we have, and I can't start picking and choosing the things I want to adhere to Jesus or not. There's no evidence to support that. And actually, there's evidence against that later on when we start reading this. And so I think it's interesting, though, to note that the idea of the church and the idea of pagan and tax collectors. Keep those things in mind, okay? Because I think it's important for us to understand that. Also keep in mind this idea of the the child and humility that we're talking about or have been talking about. This is all to be remembered in this context um, as we move forward. We have to understand, you know, a brother, a sister, he seems to be talking about someone who believes in Jesus. And there's this first understanding of go to them yourself. Don't tell people, you know what Tony did. Yeah, I saw Tony. Yeah, it was bad news, man. You know, I, I pray, pray for Tony. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go talk to him. Okay, yeah, I'll be praying for him because, man, that's bad. And so now more people know about Tony. Instead of me just going, hey, man, 
you know, this situation that's going on, it's not good. And if Tony says, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't have killed the squirrels or, or whatever it is, you know, giving Tony a, a free ticket here. I shouldn't have done that awful thing. I'm sorry. Then I've won a brother. The whole idea is restoration. I, I'm going there just like the shepherd goes and looks for the lost sheep. I, I'm going there to bring him back. And if Tony doesn't listen, he goes, ah, get out of my face, man. I don't care about you. Then I'm to take someone else to establish, no, look at Tony. We, we both agree that what's happening here is bad. That's not a good thing. It's a sin. It's wrong. You, you can't do this. We're going there to establish because maybe Tony's just thinking, oh, no, it's just you, but now two people are going to establish the fact. That's the whole point of two people going is because now we're establishing by the testimony of two or three witnesses that, no, this is wrong. You can't do this. And if he still doesn't listen, the idea of bringing it to the church, and if they refuse, even to the church, then you need to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, doesn't mean you treat them badly. It means you treat them as if they're not really a believer. But how did Jesus treat non-believers? He loved them. He searched for them. He cared for them. Okay, And so it's not treat them bad and make them feel like dirt. It's treat them as if they don't really know me. That's the idea that's here. And, and he goes on similarly. We're going to kind of continue looking at this, but in different perspectives. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is something that Jesus told Peter in, in chapter 16, and now he's telling it to, to the others. And the idea of binding and loosing again is you're able to bring someone up, hold someone up, or set someone free. Again, truly I tell you that two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Interesting that this is used right after talking about someone who is in sin. The binding and loosing is talking about how do we bring a brother back? How do we set a brother free? Whatever you ask, it seems to be connected to asking about this brother. It seems to be the idea of agreeing is actually to be in harmony. That's what the word means. It's you're in harmony. You're in the same idea. And we see here that prayer is not selfish. It's on behalf of someone else. That's, again, kind of the context here. And that the prayer is always answered. Maybe it's not always answered the way we want, but it is always answered. And so interesting, these, these little snippets that Jesus is giving us and they're all over the place, but somehow they're connected. He's talking about little ones and stumbling. He's talking about being aware of yourself, not to cause one to stumble and to not allow yourself to, to 
not enter into this life because you're stumbling by your actions or by the things that you think. Get rid of anything that would cause you to stumble, to be aware of these things, that God is concerned about these little ones, that the shepherd is going after these little ones. If your brother is struggling, go and trying to bring him back. All these things are really connected to, to reaching out and trying to bring people into this life and understanding that. And that what you bind and what you loose and what you pray for, it's important. It's supposed to be for other people. And thank God for Peter, because his question in verse 21 really gives us a lot of clarity. Because when he says, Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You see, that's connecting directly with what happened in verse 15 if your brother or sister sins against you. So we know that this is connected. You know, Peter's probably hearing, okay, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I let him sin against me? And it was thought in that time three times. It was a rabbinical thinking that if you... Sin against your neighbor, you should not sin against them more than three times. Otherwise, they don't need to forgive you. That was kind of their rule of thumb. And so Peter is thinking seven times, I'm being, I'm being generous. And then Jesus says, no, Peter, I tell you 77 times or seven times 77. But <laughs> seven times, but 70 times seven, it's depends how it's translated, but most think it's 70 times 7. He wasn't saying 490 times. What Jesus was saying, no, you don't understand. You, You need to just be forgiving. Now, connect this and this story that Jesus is going to give, and we're going to try and get through this. Oh, gosh. Um, connect this to what he just said. If your brother sins, go to him. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, go with someone else. And if he doesn't, then bring it before the church. And if he still doesn't, you need to treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. And now he tells us that we're to forgive 70 times 7. Those fit together. You see, it's not saying, okay, you're out of here, we're done with you. The idea is you're trying to win that person still. And you still need to be forgiving. And then let's go through this story. Verse 22, I tell you 70 times 7. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. And I I hope you guys are aware of that phrase from now on. The kingdom of heaven is like. Because this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, $10 million is a rough estimate, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the matter, ordered the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay that debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. 
His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So, in summing up all these things that Jesus has been talking about, remember, we're to have the humility of a child. We're not to try and be lords over people. When, when someone comes and they sin against us, we are trying to restore them. Why? Because the father is looking for the lost sheep because those who are hurting are in need. God is always reaching out, trying to bring people back. That is his posture. And when someone sins against you, how many times do you forgive them? Seven? No, you keep on forgiving. Why? Because you have been forgiven $10 million worth. You've been forgiven so much. And when you fall and beg God for mercy, he listens and he hears you. He's been searching for you. You were the lost sheep. And if God has shown you such mercy, how dare you not show it to others? And he's very stern in what's going to happen if you don't. It's very clear that if you do not forgive others, then you yourself will not be forgiven. I think that's something that we need to constantly remember. Peter asked this question for a reason. Because it was troubling him. If someone sins against me, well, how many times do I have to deal with it? You guys ever been there? How many times do I have to forgive them? Now, does that prompt any questions? I think it's interesting that we can take the idea of forgiveness and turn it into that it doesn't matter. And what I mean is by that is just because we forgive someone doesn't mean that what they are doing is okay. And instead of just saying, okay, you're forgiven, you know, treating someone in that condition where they continue in this place as someone, you know what, you need to get help. Okay. okay yeah, I forgive you. I mean, I, I, that's fine. I forgive you, but you need to get help. And no, you can't see him. And no, we can't let you in the house. And no, we can't do that. You're, you're forgiven but you need help. I'm not going to pretend that what's happened never happened. We're going to have to deal with the situation because unless we deal with the situation, we are 
not dealing with you fairly. You know, we're not, we're not helping you. It's kind of like, okay, this is where, okay, I've talked to you and now it's still going on. And so we've talked to you and now it's still going on. And so we have to treat you as Jesus did the pagans and the tax collectors. You, you need to be converted. You, you need to, to come to a place where you need to change because you're still not changing. Okay, has nothing now to do whether I'm forgiving you or not. My debt towards you, I'm not holding something against you, but I'm not going to be used by you and allow you to continue in a way that's going to be destructive. And so I think a lot of people think, well, you don't forgive. No, I forgive you, but forgiveness doesn't mean I accept the wrong that's taking place. And so the forgiving thing and the healthy thing to do is say, you need help. You need to see someone, you need to see a counselor, you need to get into a program, you need to do something that's going to help you get over this because until you get past this, we're not going to allow you to keep stumbling and stumbling others because that's not good for you, it's not good for them. And that's not unforgiving, that's just healthy. you know. And for some reason, we've gotten in our mind that forgiveness means closing our eyes, pretending everything is okay. And that's just not the case. You know, if you really love someone, you want them to be better. Yeah. And until there's change, you know, then you can't make other people susceptible to his sin. Yeah, because it is causing more destruction, you know, and it's not healthy. And, I mean, I think these passages deal with just that, you know, situation where the idea of forgiveness and God is still caring for him and wanting, but woe to him if he causes stumbling to someone else. If he causes someone else to sin, this warning is for him, you know, and God is always able to take like he did Saul and make him into Paul, but woe to you if you don't change. And we're not going to, you know, continue opening doors for your destruction, not only for you, but for those in your path. You know, we're just not going to do that. Do we love you? Oh, yeah. We're going to treat you like a pagan and a tax collector. Jesus loved them. He cared for them. And we'll forgive you 70 times. Seven. We'll, we'll keep forgiving you. You know, that's not the problem. But you're still responsible for that behavior and we're responsible for how we treat you in that behavior because by saying oh well yeah we forgive you and let you back and continue that we're not helping you at all and we're actually hurting other people and so yeah that's a difficult thing because there does have to come a place where you draw the line and you say no you know i love you too much to let you continue living this way because now i'm just facilitating i'm enabling you to continue this practice without saying no, you need help, and it can't be from us. You know, and that and that happens with parents and children. You know, where it's like, okay, it, it has to stop. It has to stop. I'm now enabling you to continue living this lifestyle unless you change. And and I love you too much to let that happen. You know, I love you too much to continue continue to facilitate your problems. And that's a hard thing, you know, and when does that happen? You know, that's 
a tough thing because you still love them and you still forgive them. And will they ever be allowed back? I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe not. But just because you don't accept someone back into a place where they can do more damage doesn't mean you haven't, you've not forgiven them, you know. And I think that's real important that we distinguish those things. You know, love your enemies. When Jesus said love your enemies, it doesn't mean accept what wrong they've done. It means you love them enough for them, want them to change and want the best for them. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity expressed this, I think, as good as I've ever heard it. You know, there's someone that you always love that you want them to do better and don't accept the wrong that they've done, and that's yourself. You know, you love yourself enough to want what's better for you and not stay stuck in a bad position. That's what you should do for others. When you love others as you do yourself, you don't want them to stay stuck. You want, love them enough to want to see them change, but if they're not willing to change, it doesn't mean you don't love them just because you say, no, what you're doing is wrong. You need to be judged. You need to go to jail. You need to, whatever has to happen. I still love you, but you need to change. You know, that's loving to want someone to change. That's part of responsibility. Makes sense. Yeah. And if you don't correct the behavior in a harsh way, sometimes it's more destructive, you know, um, I mean, that's kind of Jesus's point. It's like, this is very important that you knock this off. And how do we get someone to recognize that? That you're hurting people is very dangerous to you. You know, and if you don't stop, it's going to be dangerous. You know, I'm, I'm training this one dog and this dog is just out of control. And they have, you know, the husband, wife, and kid, they want to keep this dog. And... I, I've told them, I said, if you want this dog, then anytime this dog asserts itself in a way that's hurtful, you need to stop it. Otherwise, the dog is going to think this is normal. You know, and I've had to wrestle with the dog and I've had to pin the dog and the dog's drawn blood from me. And, you know, I've had this a couple of times and it's like, this is the only way if this dog is going to get you know, rehabilitated, it's going to be by you dominating the dog and not letting it dominate you. And the same thing is if you don't dominate the situation, but allow that situation to keep dominating, then it's going to be very dangerous. And when you dominate it and you correct it and you cut off its hand, you know, so to speak, and you gouge out its eye and you say, no, this is serious. We need to cut this off. We need to deal with this now we're fixing. Now we're going forward. When you challenge and confront and deal with it, now it can get better. Otherwise, it's going to be dangerous. Someone's going to get bit. Someone's going to get hurt. And it'd be better if a millstone was hanging around the neck. You know, and Jesus is telling these things to the disciples and to us. You know, he's not, he's not saying them. It's better if, you know, it's if you do these things. If anyone causes these little ones to stumble, anyone. It's worse for them. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And if your eye offends you, gouge it out. I mean, he's talking to us, warning us about something very, very serious. How we live is very important and very serious. And he's giving us stark examples of what it is so that we will wake up 
you know, like Carolyn said, be sober about this. And that includes, you know, these people that we deal with. It, it's got to be serious. At some point, it's like, no. And it's not unloving. It's actually the loving thing to do. And that's hard. And that's kind of what you have to deal with them. You know, I mean, that's really where that whole pagan tax collector, I think, thing comes in. It's like, okay, you're outside. I'm going to treat you as if you need to still be converted. And that's where God has to do a change in your life. You know, because I don't know where you're at. You know, you keep doing the same thing. I don't know. I love you. I'll, you know, I care for you. I pray God finds you. But I can't just think of you as, you know, and that's a hard thing. Sometimes, you know, you, someone who's come to church and you have to start thinking of them as not really being a believer. You know, I don't know if you know Christ or not. And I got to kind of treat you like that and trust God to reach you and change you or not even allow you into the place where you can be there. Well, another fun evening of fun stuff. Well, let's close in prayer. Um, and we'll close. Father, uh, tough issues, hard things, challenging things, sobering things. Jesus, when you spoke, you had a way of cutting through all the surfacing and getting to the hearts of the matter. Lord, your words provoke us, Lord, to thought. They provoke us to holiness. They challenge us to the very core of our being to search our hearts and to see if there is any wicked way within us, Lord, that are we people who are stumbling Others, are we allowing our hands, our feet, our eyes to offend us? Are we taking seriously life? Are we as forgiving as you have been forgiving to us? Lord, are we representing you accurately? And Lord, these are difficult things. These are difficult subjects. The idea of forgiveness is hard when we're the ones who have been wronged and how we love in spite of these wrongs is a challenge lord and lord in this we are to to pray we are to come before you lord and to lift these requests to you lord to gather together and unify in our hearts lord for others god we pray that you would provoke us in these ways. And I pray for Colleen and the situation with this person, Lord, that has been so troubling. I pray that you'd give them strength and resolve and clarity. And I pray, Lord, that they would have no hesitation in rebuking and correcting and dealing with these things. Father, that's the loving and forgiving thing to do. And may you give them the ability to see clearly how to do those things and when to just entrust those things to others and to you, Father, because it is not something that is healthy within themselves. God, give us wisdom in all these matters, and I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, that you love us, that you sought us out, that you have forgiven us, God, that you have angels watching over us that are constantly looking at your face. God, uh, thank you for the comfort we have. In spite of these hard things, Lord, there is just this warmth that undergirds your love and your compassion that is so relentless. God, thank you. 
We do love you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.